Hi, this is Jim Lobato, and I'm the president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You are listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you would have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group, which is in the business of helping the leadership of growth-oriented companies realize their potential. We do this by working with your sales force and helping those individuals discover and develop their unique abilities, and then to align those abilities with their opportunities. That's why we're known as a sales force development company. Enjoy the program. On our program tonight is Rick Harrison. Rick is the owner of Gold and Silver Pawn Shop in Las Vegas. He is also the star of Pawn Stars, the hit series on the History Channel. Rick, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What got me interested in talking to you, Rick, was I've been to your your shop in Las Vegas, and obviously I've seen the show like a lot of other people have, but last time I was in your shop, I saw the book License to Pawn, and that must have recently came out, so I thought, you know, Rick's probably has some insight, what's going on with business, so that what got us to the program today, so thanks for taking time off your busy schedule and being with us. Hey, thanks for buying the book. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now, so a little background first. Uh, Let's start out with Rick Harrison. You're an overnight success that it appears to have taken 21 years, right? Yeah, um, I am suddenly pretty pretty famous. I've been successful in business. I've never really worked for anybody. This is just the kind of guy I am. Pitched a television show for a few years, and I eventually got one. Okay, well, let's talk about, yeah, thanks for oversimplifying the two, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure it was just that easy. But let's go back uh, to your, your childhood and, and your upbringing, because what I took away from the book, whether you realize it or not at the time, you have literally spent a lifetime getting prepared to be in this business. And near as I could tell, it started out with having a couple parents that were pretty entrepreneurial before being entrepreneurial was cool. Yes, my my parents did everything when I was a kid. Everything. Um, my father um, was in the Navy, and uh, there was always some sort of system to make money in the Navy. Um, he started off, um, joined the Navy back in the 50s, uh, ended up being a personnel man. He was generally stationed to small ships, um, so the personnel man is generally the paymaster. So if you're loaning money... It's a real good idea to be the paymaster because it's really easy to get paid back. Because guys back then literally got paid in cash, so he would loan money out during, in between pay, paydays, and as he was paying them, he would pay himself back plus a little big. Worked out real well for him. And your mother owned real estate company one time in San Diego, correct? Um, yes, my parents owned a, a real estate company. Started back in the early seventies. They were pretty successful at that until uh, you know 1980, 1981 happened, and we. It's pretty hard to sell a house at a 21 percent interest rate. So they moved to Vegas because they they also on the side bought and sold gold and silver and just about anything else they could. So we moved to Vegas, opened up a secondhand store. Make a long story short, they eventually got a pawn shop. You know, I we got I got a pawn shop with them. We were all sort of like a joint venture, and next thing you know, um, we started doing pretty good. Let's go back in your book you write about and let the audience know, as a young teenager, what did you learn about selling Zippo lighters and bomber jackets? Uh, that you can make a lot of money, and markets pop up all the time. You ne- I mean, it's one of those things. You never know what's, what the next market is going to be, but if you if you can find it early, you can make a lot of money. Um, this was 
I was in my early 20s. Um, suddenly, for some reason, there was a massive craze in Japan about old Zippo lighters. And this was, you know, this was pre-internet. I was doing everything I could to, to get these things. I was putting in ads in, um, like, uh, the, the Nifty Nickel. That's the thing they have here in Vegas. I was putting ads in L.A., Southern California, San Diego. Mail me your old Zippo lighter, and I'll send you cash. It was sort of like a pre-cash for gold thing. <laughs> Well, you also seem to have a knack for spotting those trends, though. It's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things. Um, this was like a few years ago on my wife going to, uh, it was a, a regular large chain store. Uh, I'll just say it was the Gap, and they were saying, um, you know, uh, we walked in there, and she goes, no, nah, I really didn't like anything. I went and um, bought some short options right away on the, on the Gap. <laughs> Uh, lo and behold, um, I made a little money on it. Okay. So <laughs> share with our audience, anybody who's watched your show, begin to realize pretty quickly that you love to negotiate. But when did you learn that negotiation was just a show? Um, I learned that in 1973. I was eight years old. My dad is buying a Volkswagen thing of all cars. I don't know why he wanted one. Um, I let, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, when I was turned 16, it was my first car, but, um, we're sitting in the showroom. I, I'm, I'm eight years old. I don't know what the hell's going on. I'm just hanging out. And I thought the car he was buying was really cool. And, um, cause it looked like a Jeep. And next thing you know, I'm just sitting there. All of a sudden my dad just starts screaming at the salesman. And I don't know why, I don't know why this guy pissed off my dad. You know, my dad, when I was younger was a big buff guy and he was scary when he yelled. I mean, he was a military guy. And he's yelling out there, I want to see your damn manager, yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, you know, the guy leaves, the salesman leaves to go get his manager, and my dad just looks over at me and winks. And I'm going, he's doing this for a reason. <laughs> um, that was one of the first times I um, really started to learn about negotiating and the such. Okay. You, you write in your book, and, and I'll quote here. Nearly every day, I would sit in the shop and think about how awesome and crazy this life is. The people, the stories, the stuff they're selling. And then you talk about all the crazy stuff you've done. So my question is, do you have to be a little bit crazy to be in your business? You have to be a little bit crazy to be self-employed, period. You know, remember, everything, I mean, in my business, it's much weirder. Uh, it's not... My, the, the neighborhood that the pawn shop in has really cleaned up over the past few years. But for years, it was in a really bad neighborhood. So I saw every single walk of life, everything from billionaires to pimps to hookers to single moms. I've seen every aspect of society. But as far as being, you know, it's a big risk being in business for yourself. I mean, you know, there was plenty of times where, you know, I had no capital at all. I mean, it was either pay the mortgage or keep the doors open. Because in my business, when business is good, you're generally broke. You know, you just buy, you know, you're buying up inventory, you're buying up inventory, which has great sales potential, and you know you'll make money on it, but it's not immediate and it's not completely liquid. Yes, you're almost working the float, aren't you? Yes. Okay. When I start, we started the business, we were spending so much money, um, and uh, it was tough. I mean, our, our credit was bad. I mean, there was a lot of times where you got behind on the bills, and it showed up our credit rating. And when that happens, no bank's going to loan you money. Well, and, and I think people 
maybe be surprised just watching your show today that you write about in your book that when you first got the pawn license, you rode your bike to work. Oh, yeah. I, um, that was uh, anything to save money. I mean, I had one car at the time. Uh, the wife needed it for the kids. I would ride the bike, my bicycle to work. Uh, it's um, When you start your own business, um, you know, and if you're not well capitalized, uh, be prepared to eat a lot of beans. I mean, that's just the way I look at it. And, um, I've been a workaholic ever since I was a little kid. But, uh, you know, I mean, I just realized I knew I was going to make a lot of money in this pawn shop, but, you know, I didn't have any money at the time and do what you had to do. Let's talk about the show for a second. So you, you're running, at the time, a successful pawn shop. So then you get this idea that a reality TV show, how did that come to you? Well, um I mean, for lack of a better term, I've always been a media whore. I mean, you know, you get nationwide exposure, local, you know, regional or nationwide exposure. It's good for business. I mean, several times, uh, you know, I got national spots on ABC. Um, PBS actually did a documentary on the show. I mean, I was even on on Insomniac on Comedy Central with David Tell, and uh, they were all good for business. So I'm figuring, you know what, these reality shows seem to be popular. I've never actually seen one, but uh, my hear they're popular. So I started pitching my reality show. I'm saying, yeah, people would love to see what I do here. And I pitched it for four years, learned a lot about the entertainment business. It's an evil business. <laughs> okay. And eventually I ended up getting the show. And uh, I was hoping for a season or two. I never thought I'd be on 150 on in 150 countries in 30 languages. The show has just been picked up for like renewed for like 60 shows or something like that. You wrote about. Yeah, I just uh, signed for 80 new episodes. 80 new uh, episodes. So wow. Largest reality show contract ever signed. I mean, the longest anyway. And, and people are probably surprised to hear that HBO picked up the first pilot, but it didn't go anywhere. That's right. Well, I mean, it, there was a. I wanted to do one show. They wanted to do a taxi cab confession show, and there wasn't a taxi cab confession show. It was just normal people walk into a pawn shop. But most people don't realize, most people don't think that about a pawn shop, at least especially, especially before my show. Pawn shops serve a large portion of the population you wouldn't even think about. I mean, I guarantee you probably a few of your neighbors use one because um, they, don't, they, they won't admit they're using it. But they do use them. If you have no credit, you can't even get a bank account in this country. I mean, most people don't realize if you have bad credit, you can't even get a bank account. So for short-term cash, this is that's who they come to. You wrote about in the book getting Pawn Stars launched. And the first thing you wrote was you knew it was going to be successful. And then there was another motivation that you wrote about. And you said, from the first time I started having seizures as a, as a young child, I never imagined ever living into adulthood. So how has that motivation shaped your life? I guess it was when I was a teenager. I never really thought I was going to live a long time. I mean, I was really sick. Um, you know, if you ever seen anyone have a very violent grand mal seizure, you just understand what my thinking was. The, um, you know, the, that motivation when I was young was just live life, live life, live life, do everything, do everything you can. And it's sort of, as the seizures stopped, I realized everything was going to be better. I still had that mentality, you know, go for it, go for it. You know, I mean, I, I just, I could never imagine not just living a dull life. You know, I mean, there is, 
it's a great, fun world. I mean, I, I do have a great outlook on life. I mean, life is one of the greatest adventures ever. Um, I mean, and if you have the opportunity, you get to meet every aspect of life. You know, you get to see things. It's and it's really short, and have fun with it. Let's talk about the business for a second. They say the top three things you need to get right in retail are location, location, location. And that, that appears to be, yeah, it appears to be true in your store because, I mean, it, first of all, it's Las Vegas. Come on. And it's Las Vegas yeah. Boulevard. So how important is that in your industry? Um, it's in, in my industry, it's just as important as everybody else. I mean, you can have the greatest store in the world. Um, you can have the greatest hot dog stand, bookstore, or anything else. But if it's... If it's in a lousy location, it's going to be tough. It really is. I mean, you can succeed in a lousy location, but you know, you're going to, the only way you're going to succeed is just a million dollars in advertising. I mean, when you're on a busy street in a particular area or someplace like that, you know, if you're, you know, all you got to do is put a sign out and it advertises every day for you. When you have, uh, when you're in a lousy location, it's a lot more work. Yeah, because you didn't start out in Las Vegas Boulevard, so you were downtown originally, I believe. Uh, we were downtown. We had a little place. on. We started off in a really little place on Las Vegas Boulevard. You could barely see it. It was 300 square feet. We ended up getting a place in the um, downtown in the mid-'80s. And in the later-'80s, we uh, ended up moving to Las Vegas Boulevard because we figured that's where, where uh, the action was going to be. That's where we are going to be recognized, especially when – it was Vegas. We we knew that if you couldn't add the yellow pages and say Las Vegas Boulevard, you know, for a tourist, they're going to go, oh, okay, I can find that. It's right up, you know, it's down the street. Pretty easy to find. So people yeah. may not be aware that you have to have a license to run a pawn shop. So how did you get your pawn license? Oh, that's a good story. The um, Well, apparently back in 1955, the good old boys got together and they decided that um, – they didn't want any competition. I mean, this was when 25,000 people lived in Vegas. So they had the city pass an ordinance saying that when um, the city population got to 250,000, they would issue one more license. I mean, obviously, they never thought it was going to happen. Um, we had always wanted a pawn license since the day we moved to town back in 81. So in 87, um, I went down to city business license to tell me why I can't get one. So they handed me the ordinance. I looked at it. I read it. So... I called the city statistician. I said, what's the population? And uh, they gave it to me. And um, I started calling up once a week to find out what that city population was because it was really close. And in 88, I think it was April of 88, um, they told me it was um, 250,000. Fifteen months later, I was uh, down a city business license. They'd give me my license. Uh, they didn't give it to me, but a few months later, the judge said I was the first one there. So I got the pawn license. Um, even back then, it was, I think, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 for a pawn license when one became available. And uh, eventually, I, I believe the last one sold for a couple million. So, so, Rick, were people just not monitoring it like you were in terms of trying to get that license? Uh, apparently not. Um, I mean, does that surprise you? Um, no, it doesn't because opportunities pop up like that all the time. I'm, I, I truly believe that. I mean, it's just a... I mean, I don't. I think other people were monitoring it, but I don't think they were calling up once a week. How important did you feel the pawn license was going to be to achieving your overall success in business? 
it was massively important. Um, first off, most people don't want to sell their stuff. Um, I mean, if you have a family heirloom or something like that, they want to hold on to it. Um, the other thing is uh, when people went to sell stuff, they generally went to a pawn shop. I don't know why they didn't go to a secondhand store, but they generally went to a pawn shop. Sometimes they wanted the, the price on both. Well, you know, I'll get a loan. If I get a lot more, I'll sell it, and I'll just sell it. It was much more important. Plus, when um, you know I'm loaning stuff, there's defaults. Uh, that's a good way to get inventory. It's not as much as people think. I mean, when times are good, it's 90% of people pick their things up, they pawn. But the interest income is good. So in business and in life, there's probably just a half dozen things you have to get right. What are the top three things you have to get right in business, in your opinion? Uh, first, top three things in business. First thing, uh, be willing to work a lot. Um, lazy people don't succeed. Um, I have I, one thing I tell a lot of people, um, you know, people mention that guy's so lucky, that guy's so lucky. Generally, the really lucky people in life are people who really work really hard. Uh, the other thing, get a good education. Um, you know, I, I've had different circumstances in my life, and that's how I got mine. And um, it, because it, it's just everything. I wish I, I wish I went to college when I was younger. I would have known so much more about corporate law and everything else that I learned the hard way. And number three, um, you know, you got to let some things roll. I mean, you know, not, not everything's going to be successful. I've opened up plenty of businesses that didn't work out. But, it's, you know, don't get discouraged because most small businesses fail. Keep on going and going and going. And remember, Henry Ford declared bankruptcy before he opened up Ford Motor Company. What adjustments have you made in your business given the fact we're in a slow growth economy versus a, either a flat-out recession or a high-boom economy? Uh, well, in my business, it's a little different. I mean, I have a television show that gives me tons of exposure, and I get 4,000 people a day at my store. Um, what I am telling people, um, some, some friends of mine that are in business and everything, and uh, I've discussed what they're doing, is, um, you know, tighten the belt. Um, there's the old adage, that when business is good, you should advertise. When business is bad, you must advertise. And um, I have a few friends that businesses were really tanking. They made a few adjustments. Um, some of it worked, some of it didn't. Uh, but keep on, you know, businesses constantly evolve. I mean, I'm definitely not taking VCRs like I was in the 80s. So because of course I'd be out of business. Um, that's in, a, in a, an economy like this, you have to evolve, maybe provide more services, do whatever you got to do to get those customers in the door. I'm just saying uh, evolve and adapt. Let's talk about evolving and adapting for a second. The show comes on, and it didn't overnight put you on the map, but I, I, like you just said, 4,000 people a day come through there. So with that success comes overhead. So how did you handle, as a business owner, you wrote in your book, you basically have doubled your overhead from previously. How did you oh, handle that growth? It. Oh, quadrupled it. Okay. Yes. Um, it was tough at first. Um, luckily, um, you know, I, I, had, I had some money in the bank. I had a, I have a good relationship with the bank. And um, it, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't as hard as you would, as a lot of people would think it was, but it was, um, it was a lot of pulling my hair out when you just don't have enough people on the floor um, your bookkeepers are overwhelmed, everything else like that. It was, um, 
you know, uh, more business needs more work until you can uh, figure something out. And that's what it was. I was, it was a lot of long days. Speaking of that, you had to obviously then increase your staff. So what's Rick's insight on finding good employees? Well, the beautiful thing is in, in the current economy, it's really easy to find good help. Um, we're, um, you know, high unemployment in Nevada. I mean, I can pick and choose from employees right now. Um, and that's the way it is in most parts around the country. Um, you can pick and choose. Uh, I you know, I don't mean to be a hard ass to my employees, but I explain to them that, you know, listen, I expect, um, you know, hard days work for a good day's pay. And um, I pay a lot more than other employers do. So I really do get the cream of the crop. Um, and most of the other pawn shops in Vegas, they would, uh, most employees there, they would quit their job in a minute to work at my shop. Uh, I have found out over the years that um, it is worth paying that extra money. It really is. I get, I get the best of the best. And uh, if you come to work for me, then you're not the best of the best. I mean, you're not trying your best, or at least make yourself the best. I'm, you know, you're not going to be around long. But I've had, I've got my, I've had employees work for me 16, 17 years right now. When you look at Vegas, you would think it'd be the ideal market for a pawn shop, but with that comes competition. In your industry, there's, you know, it's it's seen consolidation, and national players come into the markets just like every other industry has. So, how do you compete with those big national chains? Um, that's just it. I don't compete with them. I, I make my model completely different. They have a model that works for them. Um, it's real basic. Um, you know, basically, someone walks into um, one of my major competitors, and these are large corporations. They they have over a thousand stores, and there's a few of those, and um, Las Vegas. Um, what I do is, if you walk into my shop with an 1830 Ormolu death clock, my employees are going to know exactly what it is. And in those, if you walk into that, that shop, they're not. Um, that's the, the way I think you can compete when you have a really large competitor. In general, their brain trust isn't great. I mean, at least not the people directly across the counter. And if you can beat them that way, you can beat them. Um, you can do well, and that's what I do. I mean, like I said, my competitors, they have a, a they have a business model. It works for them. They pay their employees less. They have um, a computer system that gives them basic prices on basic items. I have, like I said, I pay my employees more, so I get the best of the best. So when those really odd, expensive items come in my store, I get them. They don't. What's the key to making money in the pod business? Um, knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. Um, you know, uh, those little history lessons I give on the show? Yep. I make my employees get one every time they ask me a price on something. I, they, they just can't, you know, I really can't sit on the floor anymore because of just business ceases. Everyone wants to take pictures and autographs. So they have to bring it back to my office and ask for a price. And I just don't say pay them 500 bucks for this. I pay them, say, this is, pay them this much for it and give them a five or ten minute history lesson on it and what to look for and everything else. So every time they ask me a price, they know they're going to get an education. And I, I keep that up with my employees. How did Rick get his education? Um, when I was a kid, I was really sick. Um, and we're talking the early 70s. And when you, you know, your average middle class family had one television that was downstairs in the living room. It wasn't in an eight-year-old boy's room. 
So Rick started reading, and um, I fell in love with reading. I fell in love with reading history books, science books, business books. Uh, for some reason, I can't stand to read fiction. I can read a little historical fiction, but that's about it. And um, that's what I did. I've, um, you know, I've read, I read almost every night of my life for the past, uh, going on 40 years. And um, that's how I got my education. I, um, I had a lot of medical problems as a child. I never got to graduate high school. As a matter of fact, I only graduated the ninth grade. Let's talk about today. How is Rick juggling a successful and growing business, which is hard enough by itself, a TV show, oh. a TV show, and then I'm assuming you have some personal life somewhere. Um, that's the personal life's a little tough at times. I, uh, I literally uh, usually get to work around six o'clock in the morning. Um, I, uh, I I built a gym in my office because uh, it just got a little weird going to the gym anymore, being as famous as I am. Um, I work out um, because I re- I work out every day, but I really love good food. Uh, <laughs> That's a constant struggle in my life. Uh, at 7 o'clock, uh, after I'm done working out, taking a shower, I go downstairs. Um, my uh, director of operations um, gets in at 7 o'clock. He knows to be there to be at 7 so we can talk about everything going on. Um, then uh, after that, I go through emails. Um, then I film a little bit. Um, then uh, I, I talk to all the, you know, I meet with all the different uh, managers from my shop because, it's not the small shop you see on television. I have 63 employees down there. Um, you know, I have a, you know, I'm basically a t-shirt uh, shop too down there. So I, uh, um, I, I, we call that the swag department. I see what's going on with that. The pond department. Um, I'm always working with the uh, inventory because um, basically what happens, I'll tell the price on something or some of my other managers will buy stuff. Um, just the way everything works in there. When it comes off pawn or once I buy it, I have to hold it for a while, 30 days to make sure it's not stolen or anything like that. goes to inventory, so I have to meet with inventory so we can talk about prices on all sorts of things like that. Um, for things they don't know about, um, I'm, I'm busy from generally 6 in the morning till 5 is when I get off usually. Okay. You... I was hoping to get off a little bit early today, but didn't exactly happen. <laughs> You openly talk about in your book the drug abuse as a child and doing that experimenting. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody else. It was, was, you know, first off, it was the 70s. It was a different world. And, um, you know, I I was a kid with violent grand mal seizures. Um, I had no idea. You know, I I was of the mindset that these things were eventually going to kill me. And um, I figured I was just going to live life on the edge. I didn't give a damn about anything else. Um, and then when I got my girlfriend pregnant and all of a sudden uh, I had a kid on the way, um, I immediately stopped doing all those bad things because um, I was raised by my father and I know what it means to be a responsible dad. So that's, but um, yeah, I mean, I had a wild, crazy child childhood and I, uh, I wouldn't wish it on any parent. <laughs> you're an SOB, which means you're a son of the boss. Uh-huh. And I'm an SOB because I used to work for my father. And, and there's a special club for SOBs, Sons of the Bosses. So how do you handle working with your father all day and then okay. see him in at family reunions and then at Christmas and all that stuff? Uh, we still get along great. I mean, um, a good, like, what, 12 years ago is more or less a, 
Um, I, I mean, fortunately, it worked out. I mean, I basically, it was like, uh, Pops, it's either my way or I'm, I'm leaving. You know, I mean, I know I'm your partner here, but, um, you know, you can't start yelling and screaming and it be your way anymore. It's uh, The only way a business is really going to be successful is if it's ran by a dictator, and um, it's going to have to be me. And uh, we finally came to the conclusion that, you know what, uh, we'll talk about everything, but in the, in the end, it's your decision, son. Um, he was more than fine with that. And, uh, you know, it's it's still tough sometimes. We do have arguments about things. Uh, literally, we had a yelling argument the day we did the sales tape for this uh, for the reality show. I mean, his exact words, you are never going to get a bleeping reality show. What the bleep is your problem? Why am I coming in on Saturday? It was a lot of that going on the, you know, the, the day before we, we started filming the sales tape, believe it or not. Um, but um, in the end, I won out. <laughs> <laughs> so the next biggest thing is you look into the future. What's on the horizon for Rick Harrison? You know, I'm in, a, I'm in a financial spot in my life. I, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things I could do. Um, I'm um, I'm one of those guys who loves to sit in his garage and build things. So I might try retirement for a few years. If it sucks, I'll get right back into business. You know, because I know that doesn't always work out. Yeah, can, uh, can I make a prediction? <laughs> Are there odds on this somewhere in Vegas I could bet on? Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I have a wild, weird mind. I have a few inventions in my head, and I might actually work on them for a year or two after I'm done with this. Uh, if it doesn't work out, um, I can't turn those into a business. I'll be back doing something. Rick, is there one question that I should have asked you that I haven't asked you yet? Hmm. Not that I can think of. I mean, what, 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 one thing reporters always ask me is, why isn't the rest of your family in the, in the show? And I explained that um, I, I was one of the few reality people and people in reality television ever that I was able to actually tell them, no, we're going to do it my way. <laughs> so you, t- you told the producers of the show then? Oh, yeah. I told them, you, you, you know, my family? No, no, no. If my family doesn't want to be in the show, they're not going to be in the show. I'm not, I'm not going to turn into, my kids aren't going to turn into a childhood actor because I have an eight-year-old son. Uh, that wasn't going to be in there. My mother doesn't want to be in the show. My mother doesn't want to be in the show. She's not going to be in the show. I'm not going to. I'm not going to destroy the relationships with my family just to be on a television show. I figured out something the other day. I always watch the show, first of all, and I usually have it playing in the background while I'm usually working on something, whether it's producing this show or my other regular job. But anyway, so I was fortunate to have it on Sunday when they run it like back-to-back, and you were the episode where you were talking to the guy about the invasion plans for Normandy. I don't know if you remember that. Uh-huh. So I had this show playing in the background, and I'm halfway paying attention to it, and the World War II bluff, et cetera, so I'm paying attention to this. And then he goes to commercial, then it comes back, and you're talking to the guy, and my son pops out from the office, and he says, he says, hey, is that stuff real? And I says, well, I don't know yet. They haven't gotten to that. And then just yesterday, the show was on, as I was prepping for this, reading your book, You were talking about something else, the poster, one of the rock star posters, and I switched the channel, and my son was standing there, well, I guess we'll never know now if that poster was real. (laughs) Well, and Rick, it dawned on me that that's probably the key to the success of the show. It's it's not. Well, the the key to the success of the show 
it's the only game show on prime time. And no one seems to realize that. No, it is. I mean, really, literally, you come in, okay, and I talk about the item and everything. And then round one, is it real? Okay? Round two is how much money do you win? Never thought of it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that was that was part of what I did when I pitched the show. I mean, but uh, no one's really got it. Uh, I heard for years, they, they, I mean, literally, I pitched it for four years, and all I heard was no one wants to see a show about four fat guys in a pawn shop. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because you said in the book something like it's a mixture between the antique road show and something else. I've... Um, it's a, a diff, it's a mix between Antiques Roadshow, Pimp My Ride, um, American Choppers, and Let's Make a Deal. Okay, was this your idea? I mean, because the concept obviously works. Um, yes, I pitched the show for years. Um, you know, we made a few tweaks to it, but uh, basically, I mean, this is this is how I've always done my business. I mean, I usually do it a lot faster when I'm not doing filming, but. Um, you know, I, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a great historian, Buff. I, you know, I sit there, I can tell you stories. I mean, people walk in with stuff, I can tell you all the stories about them. I'm, I'm the biggest, I can make a story about anything. Um, I mean, I've read so much all my life. And um, just, I mean, and people buying and selling stuff and antiques. I mean, I, I just, I pitched it as a cool antiques roadshow. Uh, did you really have Rick Dale from Rick's Restorations and Mark Hall and Sean Rich, all those guys as experts for so the show came around? Um, these are people like Sean Rich, American Restaurant, and all these guys are people I did business with before I did, you know, before I had the show. Okay. You know, I mean, quite frankly, you know, you go out and buy yourself a, a 1940s beat to death um, barber chair, you're never going to be able to sell it. But if I can bring it over to this guy and he charges me two grand to fix it up, I can put it on my showroom floor and get five grand out of it. Because it's, it's no longer a beat-up barber chair that I bought for 400 bucks. It's it's a piece of furniture. It's like Americana. It's a little art. You know what I mean? I I love doing stuff like that. You know, like uh, Danny Coker, who um, owns Counts Customs. I've known him for 20 years. So, um, yeah, these are guys I've actually done business with and everything else. But, um they're no, I mean, on the show, they're experts. On uh, in real life, they're the guys I did business with. Right. It's um, the joke always I have is this, this guy has an expert. He knows an expert in everything. <laughs> well, but these are all guys I've bought and sold stuff with for years. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, especially before eBay and things like that. You know, I, I'd get on the phone and call up. You know, I generally I'd call them up on the phone. I wouldn't have them come in, but for television purposes, I had them come in so we can see it. Like, uh, a conversation on a telephone, one-way conversation on a telephone doesn't make great television. But before, I would get on the phone. I would talk to these people, or um, you know, sometimes they would have to come down and check them out. Uh, a lot of times when you're looking at counterfeits and things like that, you have to sure. actually hold them in your hand. But, you know, these are guys I did business with. If a person wanted to get a copy of your book, Licensed to Pawn, where would they go? Uh, gspawn.com. Okay. Website for the pawn shop. Website for the pawn shop. And I, I sell stuff off the show on the website and everything else. So I didn't go to eBay. I sell stuff on there, too. Okay. Rick, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me. This or other BizTalk podcasts may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com. That's B-I-Z, talkradioshow.com. You can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. If you want to learn the strategies and how to take your sales force to the next level, you can contact Performance Group at 800-550-9509 or visit us on the web 
at pmgllc.net.